in part of my introduction. Watch carefully as we study this passage today. And what I want you to watch for is see the God behind this passage. Okay? I want you to think of yourself, what kind of a God would require us to be first responders? And if we are required to be first responders, what does that tell us about his nature? Let's pray together. Father God, sometimes we have to deal with difficult subjects, but we deal with them because you have told us to deal with them. And I pray today that you would help us to grasp hold of how important we are in the lives of one another. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I asked you, what is a first responder? And up until 9-11, most of us maybe didn't even know that term. We knew that there were policemen. We knew that there were firemen. We knew that there were paramedics. But after 9-11, what happened is this whole concept of first responders sort of came to the forefront of our understanding of what's going on uh, in our world. And what first responders are are people who are trained to move into position where lives are in danger, where lives are being threatened. And the first responders are those who have to have the courage to go into sometimes places of danger, often putting their own lives on the line in order to rescue people who are in some kind of, of, of trauma, some kind of danger, some kind of, of emergency in their lives right now. And so we appreciate, and they've become heroes in our culture, which is great, that those who are the first responders, the policemen, firemen, paramedics, those who go right away, and move toward that kind of, of threat are the ones that we respect and look forward to. I was uh, traveling with a group of people one night, and we came upon the most horrendous accident I'd ever seen. It was just shocking to the core of my being to be in the presence of that much carnage on the road. And at that point in time, realizing how, how awful it was, and how I had to do, even though I was not a real first responder, how I had to go and to give the help that I wanted to, that taught me these guys are doing something every single day that many times may come back to haunt them because they have to step over the line to go to help other people at a time when those people desperately need their help. Now, you may not think of yourself as a first responder, but God does. Because there are times in our life when God requires us to be the first responders. Not necessarily when somebody is in physical danger, but when somebody is in moral or spiritual danger. And there are times when in response to Jesus' command to us that we're to love one another the way he loves us. There are times in our lives when we have to have the courage to step over the boundaries of comfort, to step over the boundaries of, of safety, and to step over the boundaries into the lives of people who need our intervention at that point in time. We've been doing a series on the one another's of the scriptures. And remember, Jesus told us that we're to love one another the way he loves us. And that we're to love one another the way he loves us so that the world will know we belong to him. And we've been studying lots of the one another's in Scripture. There's one one another that we're going to touch on today. And that is there are times in our lives when we have to step out and to help rescue a member of, of our family who is in moral or spiritual danger. It answers the passages we're going to study today. And there's two of them that I'm going to intervene a little, interweave a little bit. They answer the question, am I 
my brother's keeper. And the reality is, I am. As far as God is concerned, I am my brother's keeper. Now, just have to touch on something before we go any further. And that is, it's not just we do it alone. Because the passages we're going to read are plural. The verbs are plural. In other words, this is something that sometimes you're going to have to step into somebody's life who is in moral or spiritual danger, and sometimes you're going to have to be the first responder. But as often as possible, we want to do it as a body, and you'll notice that it's plural. And so what we discover these passages, this, these passages teach us that we are one another's keeper. Now, in order for you to relax as you see the changes in some translations, let me explain that when the Bible was written, there was a word that was used for brother, Adelphos. We get it in Philadelphia. It's in there, okay? Adelphos was a word in those days that was used, as we use the term, sibling. So, when they translated the Bible, they had a choice of saying, I am my sibling's keeper. Or even, they could, say, could have said sibling, sibling, sibling. But in earlier days, what they did is they just translated as brothers, and people understood it's just simply a form of, of address, which means brothers and sisters. So you with me there? Okay. So don't think of the Bible as being sexist. It's not. If anything, the Bible actually led the way in breaking the barriers, and Jesus did, of breaking the, down the sexist barriers that every culture has set in place. The problem is, when you come to these verses, if you have to say, now the brothers and sisters, and the brothers and sisters, and them and them and them, it becomes so convoluted that actually what it does is it draws attention to itself and actually becomes a parody of trying to get something gen gender neutral. So if you're trying to constantly make the Bible gender neutral, what, what it does is it actually highlights the fact that you're trying to make it gender neutral. So you with me there? So don't panic if you only see brothers showing up, but it won't. We, we'll do some of these translations. All right, so here's the point. What God is going to teach us is that we together are our siblings' keepers. We are our brothers' keepers. And the point, if you fall asleep during the rest of the sermon, here's the point, okay? We are our siblings' helper to get them back on their feet. It's absolutely vital that we understand that our movement toward anybody who is in moral danger, who is doing something wrong, our movement always towards somebody who is in sin is never to condemn them, is never to punish them. It is always to help them get back on their feet if they'll let us. But that has to be our motive underneath. Now, what I'd like to do is I want to read through Galatians chapter 6 where is the extended uh, uh, description of this. And then I'm going to come back and take it apart. But I want you to see the whole of it before we go deal with the parts. I had a professor who taught one of our classes. When we came in, he'd say to us, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to teach you. Then I'm going to teach you what I'm going to teach you. Then I'm going to tell you what I taught you at the end. And every single class, he would tell us what I'm going to teach you. He would teach us. Then he would tell us what he taught us. And it was amazing how that actually helped to stick. So I'm going to imitate him this morning. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to teach you, then I'm going to teach you, and then we're going to go back and do a review. Open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. The first person to find it, tell us what page it's on. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it's not on a page, it's on the screen. Galatians chapter 6, 
1816? Okay. And I hope you've got the NIV there. All right. All right. So keep that open in front of you just so we can come back to it and touch on it as we go. All right. The Spirit of God is written to us in Galatians chapter 5. And he told us that we are one another's servants. We are to serve one another in love. And then in chapter 6, he explains one of the key things that we have to do in serving one another in love. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. I'm going to read it again. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Okay, so God is telling us that there comes a time when as a church, as members of the body, as, as Christians, there's a time when we would have to, we're required to step across a boundary that most of the time we avoid. Somebody's committing a sin, most of us run the opposite way. We, the last thing in the world we want to do is to cross that boundary and tell them what you're doing is wrong and we want to help you stop. Okay? Most of us are too terrified to cross that boundary. So God gives us, and we'll take a look at them, He gives us a number of boundaries that we have to erect in order to protect ourselves if we're ever called on to do this. But there's a very interesting set of boundaries that He sets up right at the beginning and end of this passage. Notice He says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. But at the end He says, each one should carry their own load. And it's kind of like, well... Hello? You're contradicting yourself. Not at all. Two different words. The word burden describes something that is too heavy for a person to carry alone. And there are times in our life, guys, when we have burdens that are too heavy to carry alone. But we're supposed to come alongside one another at a time like that and help one another to carry those burdens. I've had that experience a couple of times in my life when emotionally I had a burden that was too heavy to carry alone. And by God's grace, there were believers around me who saw that and who stepped into my life and during that period of time helped me to carry that burden alone. There was a group of people on one time who said to, who said to me, Raymond, you, you can't be alone. Sunday night, you've got to come and meet with us. And I was living miles away from them. They were miles away. We found a place in the middle. And we met at that house in the middle for months. And they said, you cannot be alone during this time in your life. You will come and meet with us. And then when we started to meet, they said, you will now start teaching us. And it was like, okay, I'll do that. And by God's grace, they were there for me during that period of time. So this is in general, we need to watch for that. That there are going to be times in one another's lives when somebody is suddenly hit with a burden that is too heavy to carry alone. And that's the time we come alongside of them. That's why, by the way, we're going to be steadily pushing you to get involved in some of our connection groups. Because we can't carry your burdens if we don't know. 
And so one of the vital things we want to make sure is that everybody is involved in one of the groups in our church just so that we don't ever have that, that sad thing of happening that somebody was dealing with something so heavy in their lives and we weren't there for you. And so when it describes burden, it's described something that is overwhelming, something that is too heavy to carry alone. And especially when somebody has, and if somebody has been, if we've gone to them and they're in sin and they listen and they respond to us, often they have a burden to carry now the consequences of what they've done wrong. And in our culture, our normal attitude is, you made your bed, now lie in it. Isn't that true? You committed this sin, now you've got to live with the consequences. See ya. This passage is telling us, uh-uh. That even in a time like that, when somebody has done something wrong and they have listened and they have repented and turned around, we may need to come alongside of them and help them carry the burden of the consequences of their sin for a while. But then he contradicts himself. At the end he says, and each one should carry their own load. It's like, hello, which is it? It's both. We carry their burden that is too heavy. The word load described a soldier's pack. A soldier's pack was something he had to carry. Nobody else would carry that with him. He had to carry that pack. Whatever was assigned to him, he had to carry. We used to go out into the desert, Namibian desert of southwest Africa, on route marches through the desert. <laughs> and I tell you what, it is horrible to have to just walk. Imagine beach sand that goes on forever and then goes up and down and up and down. We used to have to hike through that darn stuff. And each one of us had to carry his own pack. You couldn't go to somebody else and say, please carry my pack. It's like, are you kidding? Heck no. I've got enough to carry. You carry your own pack. That's what that picture is. And so there's a time in people's lives when they're carrying a load that is too heavy and we come alongside of them to help them carry the load. But not forever. Our job is to help them carry their load and help them get strong enough to get back on their feet that they can now take responsibility for their own lives. It's a very important boundary that we have to keep in mind. So it, what it does is it prevents the church from become, having people become codependent who will come to us and expect us to carry them and carry them and carry them always. That's not a healthy thing to do. Our job, again, is to help them get back on their feet. So that's one of the, the, the critical uh, boundaries that this passage sets up for us. In fact, Paul speaks to it financially with the Thessalonians. He says, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Very simple. Somebody comes to us for food, we will help. But if they keep coming to us for food every single day, it's like, uh-uh, uh-uh, no, 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 no. You have to earn your own living. So do you see the, the nice balancing thing there? It protects us and protects you. And in, remember this individually. You may start to help somebody who will then begin to lean on you for things that they shouldn't. There comes a time when you need to help them get on their feet so that they can take care of their own needs. All right. Now, go back to the beginning of this. We're told in the scriptures that our job is to restore a fallen Sibling, someone, brother or sister, who has fallen into sin, who has been tripped by sin, who has fallen into something that is morally wrong. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. Now, there are times when people are not caught in a sin. They don't trip into a sin. They deliberately go and, and sin. Yeah, 
they jump in and, and do it. Do you remember that song? I was sinking deep in sin. da 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 We were singing that once, and one of my friends said, added this to it, I was sinking deep in sin. Wee! <laughs> so, hi guys, and welcome. This passage, and, the, and as we'll see in James, both of them give the, the person the benefit of the doubt. Okay? Obviously, there are times when we get into sin, it's deliberate, we've chosen to do it, we're going down this path. Even then, we are to go and try and, and bring the person back. And notice that word, restore him gently, not punish him, not beat him out, not kick him out. Our job is to do everything we can to restore the person. Hang on, hang on. Mending nets. It was used for mending a broken bone. And so the purpose of mending a net is so it can be used again. The purpose of mending a bone is so you can walk on it again. And so our main approach toward people is not to be judgmental. It's not to be condemning. Our job is to go to them to restore them. Now, right now you're going, but, 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 we're told you must not judge. Have you heard our culture say that? You shall not judge. That's total nonsense, and it's taken out of context. Jesus said, do not judge, because with the same measure you use, you too will be judged. And then Jesus goes on to tell us, and incidentally, there are some people who are not ready for spiritual things. Don't give them spiritual things. And he goes on to say, and among you there will be people who are teaching false teaching. Stop them from teaching their false teaching. And you're going, wait, 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 wait. You said do not judge, and now you tell us where to judge? Obviously. Judge has a, has a continuum of, of concepts from evaluate to condemn. And what Jesus is telling us here, don't condemn. That's God's job, okay? But there are times when we need to be alert enough to evaluate somebody and to see that they're doing something wrong, and then we have to go to them and, and, and deal with it. But notice our goal is to restore them, and to restore them gently. Come back to that in just a moment. Why must we restore them? Because unchecked sin has frightening consequences. Very frightening. He says to us, do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And he deliberately pushes these two out to the extents. He say, if you want to sow to your sinful nature, if you want to be dominated by that, and you want to live that kind of life, do you realize that the end of that is destruction? Destruction of the worst possible kinds you can imagine. Your life is going to be injured. Your life is going to be harmed. Your relationships are going to be harmed. You're going to, if, you're, if you're going to choose this path, realize it's a path that can only end up in some kind of destruction. Man has an affair, and he thinks, oh, Nothing's going to happen from this. Oh, yeah, it is. Your life is now going to be affected personally. If you continue in this and you don't turn back, if you don't turn back, realize and understand that as you get further and further into this, you're doing harm to other people. You're doing harm to, to your siblings, uh, your, your family, your, your spouse. You're doing harm to yourself. It leads to destruction. If you choose that this is what you're going to sow to, that leads to destruction, and it's a fact of life. You've got to be aware of it. If you sow toward the Spirit, if you follow where God is leading, it leads you deeper and deeper into life. Life the way God intends it to be. And so there's a terrible consequence. You can't... Actually, I wasn't going to... Yeah, I shouldn't do it. Okay, no. Okay. God cannot be mocked. Think about that. 
I'm going to do this, and I don't care. God cares. That's the thing that we have to realize. Have you seen some of those videos where there's a little kid that's, who's got makeup all over her face, and there's makeup on the walls, and there's makeup on the bed, and her mom comes in and says, who did this? And the kid goes, hmm, 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 hmm. I don't know. I saw one where these kids were covered in chocolate. And the mother says, who did this? And two little boys. One of the little boy goes <laughs> to the other one. He did it. He's to blame. We have this idea that God can't see us. And that we can mock God when he tells us, don't do that. And remember what God's laws are. God's laws are to keep us safe. My son and I often go over to Catalina Island on his boat. And we leave Oceanside Harbor. And as you leave and come back into Ocean Harbor, there is marker buoys with green and red flare uh, lights on top of them. They tell you, this is where it's safe to go. We go where it's safe to go. But you've got the freedom. You say, no, I want to have fun. There's so much water out there. I'm going to go out there. Well, you can go out there all you, you, you like, but you're going to hit rock. You're going to completely destroy your boat if you go out there. Believe me, there's rocks under the water, and you will destroy yourself. When God gives his laws, it's not because he wants to spoil our fun. It's not because he just wants to bully us. When God gives us laws, he's laying out for us the safe place to go. And as long as we trust him and follow, we can live safely, and we can sow toward eternal life. He gives us the freedom to make stupid choices. But if we make stupid choices then, of course, you will face the danger, the destruction that comes to you on the outside there. Okay, so forget to say it. This, this passage is not teaching that if I'm a believer, if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, what happens is at the moment you believe, God declares you to be forgiven of your sins as far as you're standing before Him. Forever, okay? Judicially forgiven. This passage is not teaching that if you now sin and you don't, don't come back, you'll eventually get kicked out of his uh, kingdom and, and condemned to hell. That's not what this passage is talking about. You have to balance all of Scripture with Scripture. This is not warning. You can lose your salvation. But you can lose reward. You can lose your family. You can lose all kinds of joy. You can lose your opportunity to serve God. There's all kinds of destruction that you can bring into your life when you do this. By the way, it's important to understand there's a difference between judicial and relational forgiveness in the Bible. The moment you believe in Jesus Christ, you are judicially forgiven by God. Your sins were punished on the cross, and you are judicially forgiven by God. But as a Christian, if I commit sin and keep committing sin, my relationship with God is now being ruined. And that relationship needs his forgiveness. I need to, to, to confess, and I need to come back into a relationship with him. That's where, that's where the relational forgiveness comes in. With me there? Okay. So, we're warned by Paul. We've got to rescue our brother or sister from, from moral sin because they're going to reap whatever they sow. James says this, My brothers, if one of you should wander off from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. <laughs> That's in the Bible. That was the first letter written to the churches, written by Jesus' brother, James. The Spirit of God wrote this. And he said, understand this, that if somebody insists on continuing to live in sin and to sin against God, he may die. The book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 warned the church in Corinth 
the way you guys are abusing the, 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 the communion table, some of you have died as a result of that. Ananias and Sapphira lied to the church, lied to the Holy Spirit. They died. They were Christians. Did they go to heaven? Yes. But they lost the opportunity of physical life. Now be really careful with this, okay? All Christians eventually die. So when a Christian dies, don't think, hmm, I wonder what he did. That God took his life at this point in time. If God took our lives every time we sinned, I would have died somewhere between the ages of 17 and 18. And repeatedly over the years. In his mercy, God holds back. But there are times when God will look into the life of a person who is living such an ungodly life, one of his children, that God may eventually say, you're done. I'm going to terminate your life right now because I don't want to let you continue to live that kind of a sinful life. So there are frightening consequences that all of us need to be aware of, that we can't mock God. You can't just say, I'm going to live the way I want to, and God's not going to care. He does care. And again, that's why I asked you to think about God. What does this passage tell us about how God responds to us and treats us? All right. And we must restore because God's forgiveness covers repented sin. Notice what James said. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Notice it says cover over, not cover up. What's the difference between covering over and covering up? When you cover up something, you're hiding it. When you cover up something, you're not dealing with it. You're not facing it. And you're trying to bury it under something. My sister had a new boyfriend coming over to our house one day, and as he was coming down the, the, the driveway, she was, <laughs> she was sweeping up some stuff in the, in the living room, and she saw him coming down, so she picked up the couch and swept all the stuff under the couch and put it down. And her boyfriend came in, and we were having a nice time, having cokes and like that. And then some other people arrived, and he said, here, let's move the couch. <laughs> it was like, there, all that muck. That's what a cover-up is. When we try to cover up and hide and not deal with sin, it's going to show up eventually. That's a cover-up, okay? The way you deal with sin is you go before God and confess it. And then you put right whatever needs to be put right. James tells us, by the way, to confess our sins to one another. That doesn't teach us that we must create a confessional where people come and confess to a priest and he forgives them. Confessing your sins to one another is confessing the sins to one another that you've committed against one another. And that's where that kind of confession comes out. And so in order not to cover up something, you have to face it before God. And you have to face it before the people who've been impacted by what you've done wrong. Ask for their forgiveness, and if necessary, make reparation, do whatever is necessary to help set matters right again. That's a cover-up. A cover-over is once you've dealt with it and it's been dealt with properly, then you cover over a multitude of sins. And you cover them over because they've been dealt with. God has dealt with it, it's been forgiven, and now you leave it in the past. And one of the things that a church does for the leadership, by the way, is when we tell you we've dealt with this, you trust us. We, you appoint, you help to appoint the leaders of the church, and when we have to deal with a moral issue in somebody's life, you have to leave it in our hands. 
Because once it's been dealt with, if we felt it's been dealt with correctly, we then cover it over, okay? We know it's done. You don't need any more details. You don't need to know. Those who need to know, know, and they've dealt with it, and it's been covered over, not covered up. Very important difference between the two that, that have to be dealt with. And one of the marks of a, of a healthy church is when we can get these things into proper balance. God says this, I, even I, am who, who, he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. That's our God. God says, all right, once we've dealt with this, once it's been dealt with in every single way, I want you back on your feet. And I want you back on your feet so that you can go forward in your relationship with me. Now, there's some boundaries that this passage puts up. To restore somebody, we must be maturing, we must be gentle, and we must be cautious. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. That's where I get the concept that sometimes something is too big for all of us to deal with. And so, for us to deal with individually. And that's where you need to now gather others around you who are spiritually mature so that they can go and deal with the issue. That's why it is vital, guys, that you watch constantly the leaders of our church. That every single person who is an elder or a leader in our church, we have to be watched to make sure that our lives are measuring up to the the standards that God has. Now, that doesn't mean we have to be perfect, okay? You know what the, the, the uh, definition of a pastor is? I pretend to be perfect, and you pretend to believe me. <laughs> when we appoint leaders every year, we ask you, please, examine our lives. And I, I don't believe in lifetime ordination. I'm only a pastor as long as my life meets the moral standards of an elder. If I don't, I'm not an elder, I'm not a pastor, it's done. And so when we bring leaders before you, that's what we're looking for, is people who are spiritually mature, because sometimes they're called on to step into situations that are terrifying in terms of the moral, uh, moral uh, potential for them. And so if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Move them there. Gently, the word is translated in some as velvet steel. In other words, we don't overlook sin. We don't bury it. We don't pretend it's not bad. We have to face it and deal with it. But we deal with the person gently in order to help them get there. And then, but watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. We're all human. And in the midst of dealing with the moral failure in somebody else's life, you may find that you're being tempted to think, I can do this too, or being tempted by the, the, the process as well. Years ago, I had to take an elder with me to go and confront a man who was living in sin. He'd, he was committing adultery. He'd moved out of his house, left his wife, and moved in with another woman. And on the way there in the car, I turned to the elder and I said, all right, answer a couple of questions for me. Is what he, doing, what he is doing, is it forbidden by God? And he looked at me like, adultery? Yeah. God forbids adultery. I said, okay. Is what he's doing having left his wife and moved in and living with another woman, is what he is doing wrong? And he looked at me like, of course it's wrong. I said, all right, now be prepared. Because when you listen to him justify why what he's doing is right, you're going to find your mind confused. 
And you're going to hear this man be able to explain why what he is doing is acceptable to God and allowed by God. And he looked at me like, no. After our meeting, as we were driving away, I said, did it happen? He said, oh my gosh. He said, I sat there with my head spinning as he explained to us how vitally important it was that he be living with this woman and why he could not leave her now and go back to his wife. And he said, I can't believe it. I can't believe how completely confusing that was. That's why the Spirit of God says, be warned. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? I know of men who are living in adultery who go to church every Sunday. Living in adultery and they go to church and they praise God and they raise their hands and they bring their Bibles. And you think, what in the world are you thinking? Do you think God doesn't see that? Do you think you can fool God while you're singing and doing that? Not at all. Because the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And it is amazing how we can justify doing things wrong. And he says, well, if you find yourself in a position like this, and you may, just trying to deal with somebody in your family or your, or your, or your life. And you discover that, oh my gosh, I can't, I, can't, I can't grasp the fact that you're able to justify what you're doing. But then you also have to be careful that where you go, you don't go with an arrogant attitude. If anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. In other words, one of the boundaries God sets is that spiritual people must go. Spiritual people must be very careful when they do this. And spiritual people must be careful that they don't go with the attitude that I would never do this. Oh, yes, you could. That's the thing you have to understand. And so you don't compare yourself. Well, I would never do this. I'm, I'm, I'm not like him. Compare yourself to where you are spiritually and be aware of the limits on your life. And when I am the person on the receiving end, when I am restored by my fellow believers, I must be both receptive to them and appreciative. If anyone, anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Interesting that this verse is here. It's like, what? It basically tells you you've got to pay your pastor. Okay, so we'll move right along now. Often in the process of helping to restore somebody, the person helping may expend some finances. The person helping may step in and help to, to, to do something that will cost them personally, both in time and perhaps in finances. And that's why a person who's been helped like this must be aware that there comes a time when you need to repay. There comes a time when you need to set things straight again. If it took them money to help rescue you, you need to help make sure that they get repaid for that. And let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. <sighs> See what I mean by a heavy passage? <laughs> it's like, oh, this is not going to be much fun to preach this sermon today, but it's part of our life together as God's people that we need to understand and know these things. But I asked you before we started, what does this passage teach us about the God who wrote this? How does God treat us when we sin? When we sin, what is God's first impetus toward us? 
is it to come and crush us? To restore us. But notice that, to restore. And restoring hurts. Ever had a broken bone? In the process of that bone healing, it hurt, didn't it? And so in the process, sometimes when God steps into our life to, to, to bring us back, put us back on our feet, it hurts. But it's that kind of hurt where God is doing it as our physician to heal us, to put us back on our feet. When God looks at you and me committing sin, his first impulse is to restore us, to get us back to where he wanted us to be as quickly as possible, as swiftly as possible to put us back on our feet again. How do we know that? Well, Psalm 103 tells us this. The Lord is compassionate, compassionate and gracious. Read this with me. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Wow. Jesus was the prime first responder. Jesus came and he gave his life to rescue us. He put his life on the line. He paid with his own life in order to rescue us. And he wants us to understand that's the spirit he wants us to have as well. Interesting thing is as far as the east is from the west, why didn't he say as far as the north is from the south? Because north and south loop. East and west don't. Think about it. You go north, and what happens is you go south. And then you go north again and south again. And you see, that's how we think God deals with our sins. I'm going to keep a record of it. And I'm going to forgive you as far as north is from the south, but then it's going to come around again, and then I'm going to remember it again. But east from the west, notice that when you go east, you're always going east. It doesn't turn into west. You keep going east. Isn't that amazing? And God says, that's how far away I take your sins so that they are left behind and you move forward into the future, leaving your sins behind. Let's pray together.